Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. You may leave now to go to Kids on Worship. The rest of you can open your Bibles to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. How many of you like cliffhanger endings? <laughs> Some of you are raising your hands. You know, the entertainment industry is built on keeping viewers in suspense by having cliffhangers. Now, I know a lot of you aren't have the fondness of Star Wars the way our family does, but there is a cliffhanger in Empire Strikes Back, the second movie of the real movies, you know, the first movies. There's the cliffhanger. The movie ends with Luke Skywalker finding out that his dad is Darth Vader, and then you have Han Solo being frozen in carbonite, and then the movie just ends. And I remember at the time, people were just frustrated that, that's it, you've left us hanging, we have to wait three more years till Return of the Jedi comes out to find out what's going to happen next. Well, maybe Star Wars isn't your thing, maybe you like the Food Channel. My wife and I have been addicted, that may be too strong of a word, to Chopped. You ever seen the show Chopped? It's four contestants go before these premier chefs to make sure that they don't get chopped. And there's one chef standing. And what they do is that right before they go to commercial, they have the tray of who's going to get chopped. And and they cut to commercial and you have to wait. The cliffhanger to find out who gets chopped. You know, it happens on your favorite movie, like or your favorite TV show. When you get to the end of the season, you have to wait the whole summer, what, to find out what happens next. All great stories have cliffhanger endings. All great stories have what we would call a sequel. A sequel to the cliffhanger. And that's where we focus our attention this morning. We're beginning a new sermon series to the book of Acts, entitled Adventure in Acts. And Acts is a sequel to the book of Luke. Luke writes Acts. Luke's first book is the Gospel of Acts. Acts is the sequel, if you will, to the first of his Gospels. But before we dive into the book of Acts, we've got to see how Luke ties these two books together. So let me ask you a trivia question before we start out this morning. Who has written the most in the New Testament? Most of you would probably say it is Paul. Paul wrote the most books in the New Testament, but the largest volume of writing in the New Testament is from Luke. When you combine Luke and Acts together, Luke is the most prolific writer in the New Testament. He's written the most material. Now, what we need to do is to see how the gospel of Luke begins. So we're going to start in Luke chapter 1, verse 1. And I'm going to take us through a pretty long introduction this morning before we get to Acts, so just just hang with me. But we're trying to build a case here of showing you the sequel, the cliffhanger, how it all ties together. So, Luke chapter 1, verse 1. 
Luke writes, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Now, Luke is writing to this mystery man named Theophilus. We really don't know who Theophilus is, but Luke starts out with his thesis. Here's why he's writing the Gospel of Luke. I'm an eyewitness. I'm going to compile all the information, all the eyewitness information, and I'm going to write an orderly account of what is going to happen. And that's why Luke is the longest gospel, because Luke is a historian, Luke is a reporter. He's an investigative reporter. Luke is a masterful writer. He's highly intelligent. He's the beloved doctor. So Luke's gospel begins with this address to Theophilus. Now, how does Luke end? Let's turn to the end of Luke. He's writing to Theophilus, an orderly account of all the things that happened in the life of Jesus. Then Jesus dies on the cross rises again, appears to his apostles. And this is where we pick up at the very end of Luke, Luke 24, 44 through 49. Luke 24, 44 through 49. This is Jesus speaking to his apostles. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Now, Jesus appears to his disciples and says, everything that happened in Genesis in the Old Testament, all the way back in those days, points to me. And it all pointed to the fact that I'm going to die on the cross, I'm going to suffer God's wrath, I'm going to rise again, and your job, apostles, is to preach the gospel, to preach this message, to be witnesses to this message, to preach forgiveness of sins, to preach repentance to all nations. But before that happens, disciples... Something very crucial has to happen before you dare begin to do that. Jesus says you are to wait for the promise of the Father. Now, who's the promise of the Father? We know that is the Holy Spirit. They are to wait for the Holy Spirit. Now, the apostles don't have all the information that we have. They don't know what's going to happen in the book of Acts. All they're told is, go wait. Don't go preach Don't go minister, go and wait until you're clothed with power from on high. So Luke ends his gospel with a cliffhanger. They're just sitting around waiting. Jesus says, go preach, but you got to wait. Wait until the Holy Spirit comes. Now, when you think about what Jesus is calling these men to do, it is really staggering. So what I want us to do is to jump into the Gospel of John just briefly to see what Jesus tells these men they're going to do before the Holy Spirit comes upon them. So turn to John with me real quick. John chapter 14. And let's see what Jesus is calling these men to do. Luke ends with the cliffhanger, wait. Wait for the Holy Spirit. That's just how it ends. Well, is the Holy Spirit come? What are we supposed to do? We're just in the waiting mode. 
Now look at John 14, 12. This is a staggering passage of Scripture that has amazing implications. And when the disciples first heard this, they were probably in a state of shock. So let's read John 14, 12. Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I'm going to the Father. Your apostles are going to do greater works than me because I'm going away to the Father. Now let me set the stage for you here real quick. This is the last night that Jesus is with his disciples. They're in the upper room. They have just celebrated Passover, which Jesus reinterprets as the Lord's Supper, communion. And he looks them squarely in the eyes and says, you guys are going to do greater works than me because I'm going away. Now, that doesn't make any sense to them. Jesus, you're telling us we're going to do greater things than you, and yet you're going away? How in the world are we going to do greater things than you with you not being here? We're going to be left to ourselves? We're going to do greater works? And think about the guys he's talking to. You got Peter. You know who Peter is, the impetuous, put your foot in your mouth, braggart who was always standing up and doing, um, just rushing headlong into situations. And just hours later, he's going to what? Deny Christ three times. You got James and John. How would you like to have the nickname Sons of Thunder? They wanted to rain down fire on the unbelievers because they didn't believe. And, and they got their mom to come in and try to get them a place at the table. And so James and John, the sons of thunder. Then you have Thomas the doubter, Matthew the tax collector, Simon the zealot. He was a political anarchist that wanted to overthrow Rome. How would these guys do greater works than Jesus himself? Now, Jesus doesn't leave them in the dark. He says, you're going to do greater works than me because I'm leaving you doesn't make any sense jesus you're leaving us well let's keep reading look at john 14 15 through 17 just go down a few verses verse 15 if you love me you will keep my commandments and i will ask the father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him you know him for he will dwell with you and he will be in you Jesus says, I'm going to send a helper, the spirit of truth, the Holy Spirit. He's going to live in you. He's going to be with you. You will have a helper. Now, this word helper, now your translations may have a different translation there. It may say comforter, advocate. It's the Greek word parakletos. It's a very rich word, helper. Here's what the word helper means. The word helper could mean someone who comes to your aid in a time of need. It could mean someone who's called to the front of the battle to support help for the troops, someone who encourages you, someone who comforts you, or someone who is a legal advocate in a court of law. And so what Jesus is saying is, is I'm going away, but the Father's going to send another comforter, another helper, another encourager, someone that's going to come empower you, encourage you, teach you, train you, because I'm going away. And disciples, because I'm going away and because the Holy Spirit's coming, you will do greater works than me. Well, let's keep reading. Look at verses 25 and 26 of John 14. John 14, 25 and 26. Just jump down a little bit. 
These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I've said to you. Again, Jesus says you're going to have a Helper. He's going to come. He's going to teach. He's going to encourage. He's going to bring to remembrance. Okay, flip over to John 15. We keep seeing this repeated pattern. Jesus is going away. You're going to do greater works. I've got to send the Helper. John 15, 26 and 27. John 15, 26 and 27, the very end of chapter 15. Notice what Jesus says again. But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me, and you also will bear witness because you've been with me from the beginning. Jesus ties in witness with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's going to come. This Helper's going to come help you bear witness about me. He's going to give you power to witness. Now, at this time, their heads are probably reeling because Jesus keeps saying, I'm going away, I'm going away, I'm going away. Well, Jesus, you can't go away. We need you here on earth with us. We, you're telling us that we're going to do greater works than you, but you're going away, and we don't quite understand this helper business. One more time, Jesus reminds them. Turn to John 16. John 16, verse 7. Jesus says in John 16, 7, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. The last time Jesus says, It's better that I go away. I need to go away. I need to go back up to my Father. Because if I don't go back up to my Father, you will not receive the Helper. So Jesus promises them the coming of the Holy Spirit to be their helper, to be their encourager, to be their comforter, to be their power, to teach them, to guide them into all truth, to help them do greater works than Jesus himself did. So we've got to ask the question, if the disciples are supposed to do greater works than Jesus, what are these greater works? And you're saying, I know what these are, Sean. I watch TBN. I watch Christian broadcasting. These are obviously greater miracles, right? The disciples are going to do greater miracles. The disciples are going to have this outpouring of uh, these weird manifestations and all this weird stuff, all this hoopla you see on religious broadcasting. What are the greater works that Jesus was referring to? Are they going to be doing greater miracles than Jesus? Well, we're going to look at the book of Acts over the next few months, but let's just ask some questions. In the book of Acts, do you see any apostle walking on water? No. Do you see any apostle feeding 5,000? No. Do you see any apostle transforming water into wine? Do you see any apostle healing a person born blind and healing them? Do you see an apostle raising anyone from the dead who's been in the grave for days? So just by looking at the books of Acts, we can't say that it's going to be greater miracles because it just doesn't play itself out. The disciples aren't going to do greater miracles than Jesus, but they're going to do greater works than Jesus. So what is this that the disciples are called to do? Well, let's ask two questions real quick. How extensive was the ministry of Jesus while he was on earth? Just while he was on earth, how extensive was his ministry? About 150 miles. It was limited to the area of Palestine. He didn't venture very far off than 150. See, he had a ministry that basically was about 150 miles. When you think about the whole known world at that time, Jesus had a very small ministry geographically. Okay, how influential was Jesus' ministry? By modern standards, 
Jesus' ministry would not be considered very influential. The church growth movement and the megachurch pastors would probably not write a book about Jesus' ministries of growing a church. Who's with him on the night of his betrayal? And who's left? When we start the book of Acts, there's about 120 people hanging around. By successful standards, we may say that's not very successful because at one point, Jesus had 5,000 following him and after his death, burial, and resurrection, he's only left with about 120. Yet something very interesting happened on the day of Pentecost. Peter stands up, preaches the first Christian sermon and what happens? What happens on the day of Pentecost? You see 3,000 people getting saved. And you stop and you look back and you say, by success in evangelism, Jesus is more successful. I mean, Peter is more successful than Jesus. Jesus never had the evangelistic success of Peter preaching the gospel and having 3,000 people converted in one day. So we have to ask the question, what are the greater works? What are the greater works that the disciples are going to do? It's simply this. The greater works that the disciples are going to do is the advancement of the gospel and the salvation of people from all tribes, tongues, and nations. They are going to be able to go get the gospel to all the earth. It's going to be more extensive than Jesus, and it's going to be something that's going to be more successful than Jesus. Now, don't be bothered by that. It's not saying that somehow Jesus was unsuccessful, but what we're saying is the impact that the disciples would have with the Holy Spirit would be far more um, impactful than Jesus had in his three years of ministry through the disciples. That's the greater works. But before they dare do that, before they begin to preach, before they begin to teach, before they begin to minister, before they begin to, begin to advance the gospel, They've got to wait for the Holy Spirit to come. They've got to wait. And that's where Luke ends with a cliffhanger. Guys, you're going to do greater works. It's going to be the advancement of the gospel. You're going to see thousands of people get saved. You're going to see this great explosion of the church. That's why we're here today. But before you even begin to do that, you've got to have the Holy Spirit. So wait. So Luke ends with a cliffhanger. Now, with that long introduction, let's turn to Acts chapter 1. And let's see how it all ties together. Luke ends with the cliffhanger. Acts is sequel. Episode 2, if you will, picks up right where Luke leaves off. Acts chapter 1, verse 1. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. To them he presented himself alive after suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. 
And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by him in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you look standing into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him going into heaven. How does Luke start? Oh, dear Theophilus, here's my first book. How does Acts start? Oh, dear Theophilus, here's my second book. It is a sequel to the book of Luke. And it's written to this man, Theophilus. So what is Acts, anyway? It's not a gospel. It's not the story of Jesus. It's not a letter. It's not an epistle like you'd find Paul writing to the Ephesians. It's not revelation. It's not an apocalypse. What is Acts? Acts is in a category all by itself. It is a history book. A history book. It tells the history of the early church. That's why it's called the Acts of the Apostles. Now, is it just any old story that that, that Luke decides to tell? I mean, he could have told a lot of things about the early church. Is every single event in the early church recorded? No, because we only have 28 chapters. It's very selective. Luke is very selective in what he writes in these 28 chapters under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. God wanted him to write exactly what's written in there. We don't have the full account of the early church. We have a selective account under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Now, what do we see in Acts? What I want to do for introduction this morning, three overarching themes emerge right here in this first part of Acts that we will see all throughout the book. These three big themes, these three big categories, these three big teachings. What are these three big issues that the book of Acts teaches? Well, here's the first one. The first big issue that we see in the book of Acts is the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God. Before Jesus goes back up to heaven, what does he tell his disciples? He reveals to them that he is the risen king, and it's about my kingdom, Jesus is saying. Notice verse 2 of chapter 1. Until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands, the king gives commands. Notice in verse 3. To them he presented himself alive after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them 40 days and speaking about what? The kingdom of God. Verse 4, while he was staying with them, he ordered them. The king is giving orders and commands about his kingdom. Jesus is saying, I am the exalted king of the kingdom. By virtue of my death, burial, and resurrection, I'm invested with all authority, all power, all honor. I am the king. And where is Jesus right now? Where's Jesus right now? He's in heaven. He's in heaven at the right hand of the Father, ascended upon high. He's seated as the King of kings. Now, the Psalms speak of this. In Psalm 110, 1 through 2, David gives a prophetic psalm about Jesus. David says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Jesus, after his resurrection ascended to the father he is seated as the ruler hebrews 1 verse 3 speaking about jesus says this he is the radiance of the glory of god and the exact imprint of his nature 
And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, that's speaking of the cross there, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Where's Jesus right now? He's seated in heaven. Why is he sitting down? Is it because he's tired? He's had a long day. He's seated down because it is finished. The work is done. He is seated until God says, Jesus, go back as king and bring things to an end. So he is reigning as the king of the kingdom. As a matter of fact, they tell him at the end of this passage here, those two angels say, this same Jesus that was taken to you in heaven, he'll come back to you the same way. He's going to come in the clouds of heaven as the king. What do we see in Revelation? This is my, one of my favorite passages in Revelation 19, 11 through 16. This is what John, the, the, the apocalypse writer says, Then I saw heaven, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire. On his head are many diadems. That's just another word for crown. He has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written king of kings and lord of lords jesus is the king of the kingdom and he's reminding his disciples before anything happens i'm king i'm going up as king i'm reigning as king and i'm going to come back as king now what is jesus doing up in heaven right now is he aloof is he is he just playing checkers with the father up there What's he doing? Is he just biding his time until God says, okay, Jesus, go back. And he's sitting up there twiddling his thumbs. Okay, Jesus. Okay, God, this is fun. I'm sitting. I'm done. How does Luke start his, this Acts, this book of Acts? Look at verse 1. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus, what? Began to do and teach. Began to do. Which means that Jesus is not finished yet. Jesus is continuing to do and to teach things. Jesus is active. Now, the word that Luke uses here for began is a strong word in the original language which implies emphatic continuation of what he's doing. How is Jesus going to continue his work on the earth if he's not on the earth? Through the Holy Spirit. Through the Holy Spirit. And so the first thing Jesus wants us to know is that I'm still at work. I may have gone back up to heaven, disciples, but I'm at work. I'm still teaching. I'm still leading. I'm the sovereign king of the kingdom. It's about the kingdom. I'm reigning from heaven, but I'm sending my Holy Spirit to work through me to empower you to be about the kingdom. Which leads us to the second theme. The first theme is the kingdom of God. The second theme is the power of God. We will see this all throughout the book of Acts, the power of God. How does Luke end with the cliffhanger? He says, wait, wait for the promise of the Father. How does Jesus say it in verse 4 of Acts? And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father. Same exact words that he used in Luke. Which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Now there's some humor here. Because the apostles don't quite get it. Jesus has just said to them, 
you guys are going to do greater works than me. You guys are going to be empowered with the Holy Spirit. You guys are going to go preach the gospel of the kingdom. There's going to be repentance for forgiveness of sins. You're going to testify to my resurrection. You are going to be about discipling all the nations. And what's the main question on their radar screen? Look at verse 6. Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? They're not getting it. Jesus, is this the time where you're going to go guns blazing into Rome and tell them who's really king, who's really in charge? Do you want us to go in and kick out the Roman authorities? We've got our guns, we're ready to go, Jesus. Set up your kingdom now. Let's politically overthrow Rome. And Jesus says, no, that's not what we're doing. It's not a political overthrow. It's not that type of power. The power I'm talking about is not to overthrow governments, to to not wield political force or violence. It's through the gospel. That's why we must never put our trust in a political party. Now, I'm not saying don't vote your conscience. I'm not saying don't be involved in the political process. I'm not saying don't get involved in things that are important for us as Christians. But at the end of the day, a political party or a political candidate or the nation of the United States of America is not the ultimate answer to the problems in the world. Only the gospel is. And only the gospel of Jesus Christ is going to transform our country through the gospel. And by the way, we hear a lot of talk today about advancing the kingdom. Christians are called to, let's advance the kingdom. Let's build the kingdom. Let's advance the kingdom. The problem is that language is not biblical. Nowhere in the Bible do you see us advancing the kingdom or building the kingdom. What you see in the Bible is that we are receiving the kingdom. Why are we receiving the kingdom? Because the kings are on his throne and the king's ruling. It's Jesus' job to build the kingdom. It's Jesus' job to advance the kingdom. The king will build his kingdom. We're just called to receive it by faith, by grace. And so when we preach the gospel, when we tell others about Jesus, when we bear witness, God builds his kingdom. And then we get to Acts 1.8. This stands as the thesis of the book of Acts and the structure for the book of Acts. You all know Acts 1.8. What does Jesus say? But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Jesus says, you're to wait to be clothed with power upon high. The power is going to be the Holy Spirit. He's going to come and he's going to give you power and then you will be my witnesses. Notice it's not power to overthrow the government. It's not power to do all this coercive, oppressive stuff. It's power simply to bear witness for them to be a witness, which leads to the third overarching theme of Acts. You've got the kingdom of God. Jesus is on his throne. He's the king. He's ruling. He's building his kingdom. He's advancing his kingdom. How does he do that? Through the power of God, through the Holy Spirit being poured out upon us, the power of the Holy Spirit. But thirdly, it's the witness for God. It's all about the witness for God. And it's interesting how the prophet Isaiah ties this idea in back in the Old Testament of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in with being witnesses. This was been prophesied from the very beginning. Isaiah 32, 15 through 16. Until the Spirit is poured out upon us from on high, 
and the wilderness becomes a fruitful field, and the fruitful field is deemed a forest, then justice will dwell in the wilderness, and righteousness abide in the fruitful field. Isaiah speaks of a time when the Spirit would be poured out. Notice Isaiah 43, 10 through 12, speaking to the Israelites. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord. And my servant, whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. I, I am the Lord, and besides me there is no Savior. I declare, I, I declared and saved and proclaimed when there was no strange God among you. And you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and I am God. Isaiah said there's going to come a day where the Spirit's going to be poured out for you to be witnesses of God. Now we need to ask two questions about this idea of being a witness. First of all, what are they to be witness of? And secondly, where are they to witness? Well, the first one, where are they to be, what are they to be witnesses of? What are they to tell? Well, go back and look at verse three, back in Acts for just a minute. To them, he, that is Jesus, presented himself alive after suffering by many proofs, appearing to them 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Jesus appeared to them for 40 days with many convincing proofs the word that luke uses here is the strongest word in the language to talk about proof without any contestation it's amazing proof convincing proof uh, convincing evidence a compelling sign jesus tells them i'm alive for 40 days he appeared to them with convincing proofs and he tells them go tell people i'm alive that's what you're to witness about Tell people that I died on the cross, I suffered God's wrath, I rose again. Go tell people that the only way of salvation is to believe in me, put your faith in me, preach repentance in me, and then there will be forgiveness. And you're supposed to do this to all the nations. And it's interesting, when you go through the book of Acts, what do you see the apostles preaching? Christ and him crucified and resurrected, especially the resurrection. It is so amazing to me that Peter and John don't preach themselves. Think about what Peter could have preached when he stood up. I was there when Jesus walked on water. And as a matter of fact, I got to walk on water. Oh yeah, and then I fell in. John, I was there. I mean, nowhere in the God, or in Acts do you see Peter and John saying, Look at us and how, how important we were as these followers of the inner circle of Jesus. No, they stripped all that away and said, we're going to focus on Christ. It's all about Jesus. It's all about him crucified. It's all about his resurrection. They don't preach themselves. They are to be witnesses. What does a witness do? A witness, is, a witness tells what they've seen what they've experienced with many convincing proofs for 40 days. And so their job by the power of the Holy Spirit is to come upon them so they can tell others what they've seen Jesus risen from the grave. But where are they to do this? Is it just confined to Jerusalem? That 150 mile area that only Jesus had when he was on earth? No, he says to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the other ends of the earth. And this is how the book of Acts unfolds structurally. In chapters one through six, Jerusalem. And then we find something very interesting in chapter 6, verse 7. There's persecution that sends them out in chapters 6, 8 through 12 to Judea and Samaria. And then in chapter 13 to the end of the book, the gospel goes to the known world at that time. So you have these concentric circles. You've got Jerusalem is where they start. Then they go to Judea and Samaria. And then they go to the other ends of the earth, the known earth at that time. That's just how the book of Acts flows from Acts 1, 8. 
Isaiah 49.6 prophesied a day where God says this, Is it too light a thing that you should be my servants to raise up the tribes of Jacob and bring back the preserved of Israel? I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. All the way back in the Old Testament, God said, my salvation is going to go to the ends of the earth. Israelites, you are to be a light to the nations. Disciples, you are to be witnesses of the kingdom, witnesses of the resurrection. You can only do the greater works when you have received power from on high. Wait, wait. So as we think about this whole book of Acts, we need to remember that we're not the main character of Acts. God is but I want to invite us into the story. We're going to see these events unfold before us of the early church. And as we think about us as Christians, we think about us as a man of Baptist church, we're going to get a sneak peek of how things unfold in the early church. And I want us to, to kind of go back in time and put ourselves in that place. But here's some questions we've got to ask from the very beginning. And they, and they involve these three things, the kingdom of God, the power of God, and the witness to God. First is this. Are you living under the king of the kingdom? Have you submitted yourself to Jesus to be absolute Lord and ruler of your life? You often hear people say this, just make Jesus Lord of your life. And that's not right. You don't make Jesus Lord of your life. He's already Lord regardless of what you do with him. You are called to submit yourself under the lordship of Christ because he already is the ruler. So are you living under the surrendered lordship of Jesus Christ? Is he your king? Is he your king? The king of kings and the Lord of lords. Are you living in the kingdom of God? Are you dependent upon him as this great savior who's worthy of praise? Secondly, are you experiencing the power of God? Are you experiencing the power of God? I don't think we as Christians really quite understand what it means to experience the true power of God. I pray we do. Do you see the power of God in your family? Do you see the power of God in your life? Do you see the power of God in your relationships? Do you see the power of God in this church? I pray that we would be a people that are experiencing the power of God through the Holy Spirit. And then lastly, are you being a witness? Are you testifying to the gospel of Christ? Are you sharing out of your mouth this resurrected Christ who is King? and how he can change your life, and how he's forgiven you, and how you can have a new life through Christ. Jesus is building his church. Jesus is advancing his kingdom. Jesus is the king that's doing all the work. But, because he's gone away, and he sent the Holy Spirit, he gives us the privilege of joining in the work that he's continuing to do. The Holy Spirit is not a physical being. He's a spiritual being. Where does the Holy Spirit reside? In us. We are the hands and feet of Jesus on this earth called to do what God has called us to do. We get to be a part of this. Now turn back to John 14, 12 for just a minute. And I want to ask one last question. Because at this point, you're probably thinking, this whole thing's just about the apostles. This whole thing's just about the disciples. Let me ask you a question. Let's read John 14, 12 again. This staggering passage of Scripture that probably causes your head to reel just the way it caused the early disciples' head to reel. John 14, 12. This is Jesus. 
Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do and greater works than these will he do because I'm going to the Father. So let me ask you a question. Can we do these greater works? Or is that just reserved for the apostles during the time of Acts? What does the text say? Look at it. Look at it closely. Whoever believes in me. Does that include us? If we are those who believe in Jesus as our Lord and Savior, through the power of the Holy Spirit, we can do the greater works. What are the greater works? The worldwide advancement of the gospel for the glory of Christ among all tribes, people, and nations so that the repentance and forgiveness of sins may be proclaimed so that people can be saved. God has called us to do that. And God has not left us as orphans. He's equipped us to do that through the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Initially there at Pentecost, the Spirit came and that was the birth of it. But the Holy Spirit is still alive and well today in our hearts and our lives. And God is calling us to live under His kingdom, in His power, and to be a witness. Not only as a church, but in our individual lives. While Jesus builds His kingdom, Jesus advances His kingdom, Jesus does it all. What Jesus began to do and teach, Jesus is continuing to do and teach. He just chooses us to be the ones that get to be a part of it, which is exciting. So as we go forward in the book of Acts, what I want us to do is just have our eyes fixed on this King of Kings and this Lord of Lords that's continuing to do and build and teach and do all these great things. But he's invited us to be a part of the process through an adventure in the Acts. Let me ask you to bow your heads this morning.